This is the Gary V Audio Experience. Cause we're gonna be Uh, speaking of the greatest, my first question for Gary is about that art by which one becomes the greatest at anything. Uh, for example, America's greatest songwriter, Irving Berlin, uh, wrote 19 mus- musicals and 1,600 songs. Uh, many of the standbys for Ella Fitzgerald, um, Frank Sinatra, Fred Astaire, as well as the national anthem, uh, God Bless America. And yet Irving Berlin <coughs> started out the lowest. He saw uh, his village uh, burn, be uh, burned down by the Cossacks. They lived in a little windowless basement in New York until his father died at the age of 13. When he uh, <clears throat> left home because he felt it was too much of a burden on his mother. Out in the street he began singing in bars to survive and the rest is history. So uh, kind of in that, in that context, uh, if you could talk about your perspective on that arc of how can anyone in their profession, in their chosen field, become the greatest? You know, I think, you know, I come from a wine background. Mm. So growing up in the wine business is an interesting parallel. Uh, we, we often talk in the wine world that some of the greatest wines in the world are the ones that have to fight the hardest to get to the water, mm. right? That when you look at the soil underneath, it, it's a mess and mm. they've got to get through the rocks and, you know, it's not clean soil. Mm. And it's funny, as my career evolved from just being wine centric to you know being out there as a personality to being an entrepreneur to having this personal brand where I would talk about myself I I started realizing you know when you co- I, you know I almost wrote a book called I wish everyone was an immigrant mm, really yeah and I think it speaks to where I'm going with this which is you know to be great I think you have to fight mm. and you know and I think the classic story is windowless apartment, father dies, or mine, being born in the former Soviet Union and getting Mm. lucky to get out of there, or Larry Bird, drunk father, taking 5,000 free throws. You know, the truth is everybody has different fights. You know, I've started looking at this a little bit different. I think about the the kids that I know that were born with a ton of money, Mm. and now that entrepreneurship is being so heralded, they are looked upon as trust fund babies and Mm. looked down on. Right. And their fight is that they have to get out of daddy's or mommy's shadow, right? Their orbit, right. Yeah, that I started on third and a half base. Mm. And so I think the people that walk into the fight, Mm. uh, regardless of where they started, you know, I do think of people that start on third and a half base and and walk into the fight, acknowledge, mm. respect and appreciate and recognize and have empathy and don't try to fake the funk and say, no, 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 when they've got $100 million in the bank when they started. Um, or the people, listen, there's plenty of immigrants and plenty of people that uh, started with zero that stayed at zero and mm. folded. And so I think greatness comes from adversity and and looking the the challenge in the eye and having the intestinal fortitude to kind of uh, to, to, to step up and, and go after it mm. okay thank you okay my next question is about um, bringing the rational and the art together uh, again going back to Irving Berlin he was a showman in fact he wrote uh, there's um, there's no business like show business yeah and there are no people like show people yeah. And yet he had this incredible, you know, again, no school, no school and no musical background uh, training, but he had this inc- incredible sense of syncopated um, melodies and uh, 
some of his fam you know, famous songs, uh, Remember, or uh, Putting on the Ritz, uh, incredible melodies. So the, the sense, he, he was a technician, he was a scientist. Yeah. yeah. And yourself, you know, your brand, your persona is like kind of, um, you know, being a showman. Yeah. Right? But I see that as kind of like, it's almost like your instrument. Yeah. Uh, you, can be, you, know, you command an in-depth, uh, detailed knowledge, analysis, strategic thinking, and that's why people pay attention to you. It's this kind of merging, and I think your bluster is well, I, you know, You know, it's interesting. I think that's why people stay paying attention to me. Mm. I, okay. I think the instrument of my charisma or my showmanship, which I very much acknowledge and, and think is part of the repertoire, mm. I look at that as the gateway drug to the at-bat. Mm. You know, I've been able to, you know, through DNA, really, and practice, I guess, um, create a scenario where one way or the other, people are going to pay attention for a quick second once I hit their radar. Mm. There's an intrigue, there's a concern, there's an excitement, there's a skepticism, whatever it may be. I think the depth of the skill uh, in the in the avenue that I focus on, which is storytelling, marketing, leadership, business building. Um, Without the chops, I mean, there's a lot of people that have looked like me that have come and gone mm, right. in, in, in the world. And, and there's a very fine line between snake oil salesman and mm. all-time great entrepreneur. Mm. And that fine line is actually not so fine. It's, do you have the chops? Mm. And when you have the chops, a very interesting thing happens. You recognize that you have the chops and you're actually able to be more patient See, the only difference between somebody who's great and has depth and somebody who's got some charisma but is a snake oil salesman is the patience. Mm. See, we both want to sell something. Right. I'm just willing to sell it over the course of my whole life. Mm. I don't need to make it at this one moment because I recognize my only skill isn't let me get you hot and heavy right now and close you on the first moment because the second you have a chance to settle down, you're gonna recognize there's a problem here. Mm. I'm the reverse. So I would say that that is, a, um, that is a very big distinction for me. So for someone who's perhaps more on the rational side and more on the art side, yes. right? so you're merging both. 100%. Right, so any I call it steak what advice and sizzle. can you give to people who to the stronger one area you know, how do, how, do you, how do you kind of complement that and merge them? Well, it's interesting. I think my advice would be counter to what people may think. I would actually say to not be crippled by your lack of charisma or by your lack of skill set. You know, it's interesting. Charisma is a little bit more magic. Okay. You know, that to me feels very difficult. I, I'm not smart enough to understand how to teach people how to have charisma or showmanship. Mm. How to... Now, on the flip side, one would be listening and thinking, but on the, on the tangible stuff, that can be taught. And the truth is it can. However, some people just don't have the attention span or the capacity to remember. Or like, there's a lot of things I can't learn. I was a very poor student because the subject matter bored me mm. and I wasn't interested in becoming a good practitioner in science or in literature or the arts. Like I'm just not interested. It's just not there and if I was forced to become great at understanding the great artists of the 20th century, or I'm in big trouble because I would glaze over. I'm, I'm starting to, you know, I'm struggling to pay attention for more than a minute on things that I don't find interesting. Mm -hmm. And so I would tell people to bet on their strengths 
Right. And to put themselves in a position to win with their strengths because that is absolutely the straightest line to success. Okay, great. Thank you. That's, hmm. <laughs> Can you talk about an immigrant entrepreneur named Sasha? Yeah, of course. Listen, my dad, you know, I would say the biggest compliment in my life, hands down, is when my dad, I don't even think he said it, I'm trying to now, you know, it's funny for me to set it up as the biggest compliment in my life and I can't recall exactly how it went down. (laughs) But I think it went down with, went down with my mom saying to me, with my dad present, the three of us being there, that, you know, you know, your dad thinks that you work harder than he did. Mm. And, uh, and me looking at him and him kind of giving me a, you know, a classic Sasha, like, yeah. you know, like a, some weird head nod without looking me in the face. Um, I think that, uh, you know, I admire my dad. My dad has a ton of flaws by the way I see the world. He plays defense, he's negative, he's half glass, half glass empty. There's a lot of things that me and my dad don't see eye to eye on, but where I, where I, ultimately respect my dad is his intent is very, very strong. And that I respect. Maybe the way he acts or communicates don't, doesn't speak to his exact intent, but he always did things that were right for his family. He always did things that were right for his business. Um, and I, uh, and I, I respect that. And his work ethic is something I obviously look up to and, and took note of and and I very much think that my success is a product of some level of skill mm. and a ton of and a good good chunk of natural talent. But I do think I win because I outwork people. Mm. I really do believe that. I mm. do believe that 100%. Mm. And I'm not sure that if my dad didn't set that example, that I'd even have the ability to think one could work that hard. Mm. Great, thank you. You promote uh, family first. Uh, why in the long run is that smart? I think it's really smart because I think that when you're in your end years, um, <laughs> and I really do think long game about this, you know, there's a couple reasons it's smart. One, I mean, at the end of the day, it's nice to have people that uh, are there for one of two reasons. One, uh, they wanted to be there, your spouse or someone of that nature. Or two, they had no choice, and so they were forced into creating enormous amounts of context with you. You've just known them a whole lot, mm-hmm. right? You just know them better. Right. Um, I, you know, for me, you know, I'm I'm Eastern European. Uh, my mom imposed that that importance at a very high level. Um, I really love my parents. Mm. I, you know, I would say one of the most interesting insights is the lack of separation between my love for my parents and my children. Mm-hmm. Whereas I think it's very common for everybody to talk about how much they love their children the most. Uh, I'm stunned how close that game is. Mm-hmm. And I feel uncomfortable trying to even figure out which one I love more or is mm-hmm. it the same or, I'm sure it's different. But for me, family is, um, to me, if everything broke wrong, mm-hmm. um, it's nice to know that there's somebody there to catch you. In your business or? Yeah, in life. Yeah, in life. You know, okay. like, like, you know, 
Uh, it's why in business I try to create a very strong family environment. I very, I definitely am far more emotional about my team and their wants and needs and, and concerns and thoughts. Um, it hits me hard. You know, some of the people on my team have things that happen that are bad in their lives and it's like those are the things that really hit me much harder than like what we do at work because I think things flow from the top and so I think for me it's insurance. You know, at its rawest form, I think family represents insurance. Like, in those darkest days, who's got your back? They're the family that were forced into your ecosystem and they're the few people that have, have transcended friendship that become family. Mm. I think you answered my next question. Uh, the reason you wrote, the reason we love our parents is because they loved us first. Every <laughs> single company should take this advice. Is there anything else you would, I think you, I think the reason, listen, I think the reason the people that work for me like working for me is I think they feel that. Now, some feel it more than others, um, but it's definitely what I'm trying to do. Mm -hmm. I I take an enormous sense of responsibility to be the leader, um, and I think that I have to love first. And so, and listen, love as an employer takes on many different tactics. Some people just want to make money. Some people want mentorship. Some people want an atmosphere. Like, there's a million different things that you have to check the box on. Love is all-encompassing and I think people struggle as leaders and entrepreneurs to love their employees because they want them to accept compensation in the form that the leader wants it to be. Hey, you should be happy because you're the top paid person in this field. Right? Or hey, you should be happy because you even get to jam with me and I can teach you. And to me, that is so the wrong way to think about it. Mm. To me, love is about listening. That, you know, there's a million, listen, I have enough ego to think there's a million reasons my employees should be happy, right? But the truth is, um, I needed to be, I needed to really be aligned with what they actually care about. Mm. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, Can you talk about growing up a Belarusian New Jersey kid? And uh, kind of the, what you're thinking, uh, kind of coming into the whole era of coming into the stock room there and your beginnings of your imaginings, your listening to the customers, your... When I was eight, this is a story I don't talk a lot about. I talk a lot about lemonade, I talk a lot about baseball cards. But given the, the emotional level of this conversation, the, when I was eight, I did a garage sale and I asked my mom for stuff to sell, and we were immigrants still. This was, you know, this was still 83. Now we lived in a townhouse in Edison, and we were clearly out of poor zone, mm. and we were on our way to middle class, but poor had not left my mom's DNA. So the notion of, hey mom, give me stuff to sell was like, no, this, like, we still use this stuff. Who cares if it's nine years old? We use it, we don't buy new stuff until stuff is broke, mm. right? And, uh, but there was a couple things she gave me, like, <laughs> Some stuff that was really like some bed covers, a, a alarm clock that looked like it was from the 40s. Um, and so I just remember my grandmother and my mother looked at me when they gave me this stuff with the thought that this stuff would never in a billion years sell. <laughs> I just, I don't know why it stuck with me, but I just, re- I just remember the look in their eye like, oh. all right, here you go, right? And so I sold every one of those items in my garage sale. 
And for like good money at the time, 10 bucks, 20 bucks, which you know in an immigrant family really matters in 1983. I remember that feeling more than the lemonade uh, and it was pre-baseball cards mm. and it was pre-selling things in the wine shop that my dad thought were hard to sell. It was the first time for real mm. that I was like, okay, I've got something. I'm mm. special at this. Mm. And uh, that was a drug that I've never been able to let go of. Mm. And, um, and I just always knew I was different, right? I, uh, this was 83 in Jersey in a part where there was good diversity but not immigrants. So I was non-American during still the Cold War. Gorbachev wasn't fully done with his plan yet. So there's right. still a little bit of Cold sure. War stuff which was, sure. I was always, look, I spoke a different language. I was, I, by the time I was in third grade I was like the shortest kid in the class. Um, I, I, by fourth grade I was the only DNF student in the class outside of like a couple of real characters. Uh, and the whole, Sorry, DNF? DNFs, like getting D's and F's on my oh, report card. Oh, okay. and, and, and really matured um, in my early teens where by all standards of scoring, which is school, only school, I was losing mm. and in my brain I was the biggest winner of the bunch. And, um, and, and that's been there pretty much from the get-go. That will be something I will die with. I will always, always think that I'm better than everybody but still have, have that ego and bravado and self-confidence mm. but also have the balance of, and the humility and the self-awareness to recognize for all the nice things and influencing people with books and things of that nature, like the world, when I pass away, mm. as much in my mind as I'd like the whole world to stop, I have a strong <laughs> gut feeling that it's not going to. Talk to the immigrant running a small business today who's trying to bring it to the next level. Some of them may be like your father 30 years ago. You know, I think you need to recognize that, um, that your biggest advantage is that you're hungrier than your competitor. And that if you're not applying your one advantage, which is your work ethic and the, and the, uh, and the hours that you have to put into your business, mm. well then you're gonna come up short. The, mm. the reason immigrants win mm. um, is often they have no choice but number two is because they're just outworking their competition. The, the immigrant who's working for 17 hours in his or her store is just working in that convenience store for 17 hours a day versus the person that absentee owns it and hires some employees and the truth is some 15 year old kid at the high school behind the register doesn't care as much as the mom mm. whose store it is and that effort and that work ethic is the variable. So I would say, just, I, I, my advice is very simple. Follow exactly what you're doing. What three changes would make Belarus or a country of your choice a more compelling environment for entrepreneurs? Look, you can start with America, which is the best country for entrepreneurs, and you can work your way all the way down to Belarus, which is probably as bad as it gets since there's a dictator there, and it's the last dictatorship in Europe. It's a little fun fact for all the listeners. You know, look, entrepreneurship needs only a couple of things. Uh, in, and it's not classic Republican jargon of like big government, small government. It's an environment that rewards entrepreneurship. Mm. So you can't be a true entrepreneur in Belarus because once you get some level of success, the government has eyes on it and you're scared. So that doesn't work. In America, the reason entrepreneurship works is not only are you at some level 
able to get pretty darn big before you become Google or Microsoft and the government wants to take a look at you, but you're commended. Mm. The accolades that come along with it, the amount of business magazines, Entrepreneur Magazine, Inc., Fast Company, the amount of people that desperately want to write stories or interview me around my journey is overwhelming and I think that's oxygen because you know that's self-fulfilling for a lot of people. Mm. Um, So it's about creating an environment. You know, the UK does not reward entrepreneurship the way the US does. Very modern, great, you know, you know, capitalistic country in a lot of ways, but you're not looked upon as like a hero or a winner when you make that leap. Mm. It, there's a cynical eye to it. There's a little more reservation around it. Here, entrepreneurship is so rewarded, even bad entrepreneurs are rewarded. Mm. People that raise money and fail, that's considered commendable. You that's gave right. it a shot. Right, right, right. That's a very American thing. Mm. And so I think it's, a, it's the narrative that society puts around it and the upside. I mean, I would never be an entrepreneur if I thought the outcome would be I get big and then I got a problem with the government. They may kill me or put me in jail. Who the hell wants to do that? And so um, it's creating the environment. Okay. Podcast family, big ups. Thank you so, so, so much for listening to today's podcast. Hope you enjoyed it as much as I uh, enjoyed creating it. Uh, and to leave you with a little bit of love, uh, and excitement, something I'm super pumped up about. January 30th, 2018, 13018, Crushing It. The new book is out. The follow-up to Crush It, the book that put me on and so many of you on, is coming. Go to Amazon, pre-order, pre-order, pre-order. It would mean the world to me if you got on that train. Get one for you, get one for your friend. This is the personal branding Bible. This is the social media Bible. My updated thoughts on all the platforms, Facebook, Instagram, Snapchat, LinkedIn, uh, and little fun tidbits like Alexa and profiles on 30 entrepreneurs that read Crush It and Crushed It. I'm super excited and proud fast read, super valuable, Crush It Still is the book I get emailed about the most. I'm trying to follow it up hard with Crushing It. Go to Amazon, search Crushing It.